Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. The New York Rangers of the early 1970s were special, and they had a special bond with their fans. The names on that team are legendary, and three have had their numbers retired. Eddie Jacquemin, Roger Bear, and just recently, Jean Rattel. Some think Brad Park should have been honored as well. However, the one man whose number has not been hoisted to the rafters yet, and was just as important as all of them and might have been the glue to the team, was Vic Hadfield. And next season, the 2018-2019 season, Hadfield's number 11 will rightfully be raised high over the garden ice. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll take a look back at the career of the first man to ever score 50 goals in a season for the New York Rangers, Vic Hadfield. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're going to talk about someone whom I consider to be one of the most underrated and underappreciated stars from years ago in the NHL, Vic Hadfield. You see, when the New York Rangers needed someone to step up and protect their top players, Hadfield was the man to do so. Without him, the Rangers might never have become the super team they were in the early 1970s. Sure, they didn't win the Stanley Cup, but a bounce here, a call there, or just one break along the way, and the Rangers might have won a few cups. They did make it to the finals in 1972, but the Bobby Orr-led Boston Bruins took them out in six games. Joining the podcast in just a moment will be George Grimm, author of We Did Everything But Win, a terrific look back at those Ranger teams of the late 60s and early 70s. And what an appropriate title. Because they did, the Rangers did everything they could but hoist the cup. First, though, just a little housekeeping. This episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible's a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes and a terrific way to listen to your favorite books, especially when you're on the run. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Like I said before, I have several audiobooks in my queue, some of which I've listened to for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Check out Audible. It's really a great service, and some of the talent to read the books is really good, and it's free for 30 days. I also invite you to visit the Sports Forgotten Heroes Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash sportsfh. 
Every day there's a sports quiz, information on upcoming podcasts, historical notes about sports, the heroes we talk about, and there's a lot more coming too. It's also a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Again, that's patreon.com backslash sportsfh. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at sportsfheroes. Look for our page on Facebook or visit Sports Forgotten Heroes on the web at sportsfh.com. Now, Vic Hadfield. He was, as they say, tough as nails. And that's what was expected of him when he joined the Rangers, to add some grit to what was, then, a rather small lineup. And being small was a huge problem, especially for the team's top two forwards, Jean Rattel and Roger Bear. They were constantly getting roughed up by the opposing team's tough guys, and after one particularly bad night in Toronto, Rangers coach Emil Francis had seen enough and put Hadfield on their line. And what a difference it made. Not only did it open up the ice for Rattel and Gilbert to show their stuff and blossom into the superstars everyone thought they would become, it also allowed Hadfield to display an offensive game that really no one knew he possessed. And here to tell us more about Hadfield and those great Ranger teams is George Grimm, author of We Did Everything But Win. George, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Well, thanks for uh, asking me on, Warren. Hey, so let's start here. You know, I read your book, and obviously you're a big New York Rangers fan. Tell everyone in the audience about your personal earliest memory of the New York Rangers and how you turned that love for a team, for a sport, into a career. Oh, well, my father took me to my first Ranger game in the Old Garden when I was about 8, 9, 10 years old. This was in the late 50s, early 60s. And um, we sat in this side balcony, and uh, I, was, I just fell in love with the game, the color, the atmosphere, the way um, the crowd reacted as one when something happened on the ice. And after the game, my father brought me down by the ice and showed me the penalty box and the players' benches and where the TV cameras and the press sat. And he kind of uh, imparted on me that this was our team. So, um, you know, ever since then, I've been a big Ranger fan, and it it grew, well, you know, from there. And then then about the time I was 13, 14 years old, Amo Francis took over Mm -hmm. the Rangers. And and he, he, you know, turned the team around. And I grew up watching those guys, and that's where my book came from. We did everything but win. I um, that was a uh, a, a labor of uh, love, actually, because I, I, you know, those were the guys that I grew up watching, right. and I wanted to tell their, um, you know, uh, about those teams and those plays and those those uh, games, those years. It, it it's an intoxicating sport. Once it gets in your blood, it's in there forever. It's a great game to watch. Yes, it's true. Hey, what about Vic Hadfield, subject of today's show? Off the top of your head, what do you remember best about him? What kind of player was he? Vic was tough. Um, and he, he, uh, 
he uh, actually came into the league as a tough guy, but he changed his game. He worked hard at it, changed his game, and he became a 50-goal scorer. Um, but he he first came into the league as um, someone who who would uh, fight and who would uh, uh, would uh, uh, protect his uh, his uh, club. I mean, he was six foot tall and one hundred ninety pounds, and at the time, the average NHL player was about five nine, one eighty, and the Rangers were even smaller. They were only one seventy five, their average uh, weight. Mm-hmm. And and the, and the uh, Rangers also had two of the smallest players in the league, uh, Camille Henry and Val Fontaine, who were both maybe 150 pounds, and they were both, uh, you know, you don't five see, eight, you don't see a lot of that small. today. Yeah, you don't see a lot of that today. No. no, but he actually turned turned his game around, and and uh, and he actually had some uh, skills. He. Uh, you know, since there was only six teams in the league back then, and only only uh, I think uh, sixteen roster spots on each team, that's only ninety six jobs in the league. So, um, so anyone was there had to have some kind of skill, you know. Yeah, you truly had to be one of the best in the world to play in the league back then. Right. Right. Hey, the NHL obviously has a long history. In fact, the Stanley Cup is the oldest trophy awarded in team sports. So the league's been around for a while. And like other sports, there's a lot of nicknames when it comes to certain teams or units of a team. Football is littered with them, from the Steel Curtain to the Purple People Eaters, to the Big Blue Wrecking Crew, the Doomsday Defense, the New York Sack Exchange, so many more. Baseball had the Gas House Gang, Murderer's Row, even Harvey's Wall Bangers. And hockey's no different. But when you drill further down in hockey, there's nicknames for lines. One of my favorites, the French Connection. Then there was the Triple Crown Line, and of course, the gag line or goal game line, which, as you pointed out in your book, was sometimes called the tagline. I didn't know that. Two goals a game. Goal tell a us, game, right. <laughs> tell us about the gag line. The gag line was formed when Emil Francis needed someone to uh, protect Jean Rattel and Rod Gobert. He, there was one game against the Maple Leafs that he had um, uh, he had the Camille Henry on the line. And Punch Inlex sent out his tough guys, including Eddie Shack, and he just, you know, he just killed all of them. And Emil, and and uh, after the game, Emil was on his his way home on the plane, and he said, "This isn't going to happen anymore as long as I'm here." So the next day, he grabbed Hadfield, and he told him that he was going to be on that line, and he said, "If anyone goes near um, Gilbert or." Rattel, he should be the crap out of them. <laughs> or words to... And uh, that's how it, that's how it uh, all came about. Now the uh, the gag line played together from '67 through 1974 when uh, Vic got traded to Pittsburgh, and um, they got their name when Milton Gross of the New York Post wanted to write an article about them. And he asked somebody in the range of PR office, uh, whose name was Arthur Friedman, who had a knack for nicknames. 
and he called them the gag line, and that's how they got the name the gag line. Wow. As you said, Hadfield wasn't really wasn't originally put on a line with Rattel and Gilbert. But by placing him there, not only did those two, Rattel and Gilbert, reap the dividends of having Hadfield on a line with them, Hadfield reaped the dividends of being on a line with Rattel and Gilbert. I guess what I'm getting at is Emil Francis, I don't think, never realized the offensive power that Hadfield would add. He knew how tough he was. He knew he could be an enforcer. He knew he could protect those two. How pleasant a surprise was it for Emil Francis to see just how good a goal scorer, how good offensively Vic Hadfield would become? Well, it had to be. I mean, Vic scored um, 193 of his 262 range of goals on the gag line. So that's, you know, that's uh, quite a bit. And he also had that, uh, that uh, 50 goal season, and for a long time he was the only Ranger to ever score 50 goals. Right. Now, Vic also helped by the curved blade. That was right around the time Bobby Hull came in with the curved blade. And Vic was helped by that for a while. But still, you still had to have the skill, you still had to be tough and stand um, your ground by the net and knock the rebounds and take shots from the point. And he. he He's a good player. He's a very, very, you know, good player. Now you mentioned the fifty goals, and that was a really, it was a real magical year. It was seventy-one, seventy-two, and he put, he scored fifty goals, a record for the Rangers that wasn't broken. I think until Adam Graves did it in nineteen ninety-four with fifty-two. All right, right. But there was disappointment too. The team had this great line, and and by this time the Rangers were. Well, they were a great team. They just couldn't get over the hump and raise the cup. The closest they came was in that 71-72 season. They finished second to the Bruins that year. And in the quarterfinals, they beat Montreal four games to two. Then they swept Chicago in the semis before losing in the finals to Boston four games to two. Talk about that 71-72 season. Just how good were the Rangers, and how good was Vic Hadfield that season? Well, if if, uh, there was any Ranger team during the Amal Francis era that was going to win the Cup, it was the 1972 team, 71-72 team. Uh, But unfortunately, um, their best player, John Rizal, went down with a broken ankle right before the end of the season. And... um, they just ran out of gas, you know. Um, uh, Jean Vitel came back later on in the series, but, you know, he, he had trouble turning, and um, it really wasn't, uh, you know, good for him. Hadfield had a pretty good uh, playoff that year, scored seven goals, had nine assists. How key yeah. was Vic Hadfield to the team? He was a key player. He was the captain. You know, there was a, um, he was tough, and he also uh, had the uh, respect of his teammates, plus the respect of, of, uh, of uh, other players around the league. And he also knew how to keep the team loose. He was known as a prankster. He, he, right. used, to, he used to swap uh, all the players' teeth. They used to put their false teeth in a cup 
why the locker and he used to go around swapping all their teeth. And if they, they, they would have to walk around going, hey, Vic, where's my teeth? And it, he was known to known to nail people's shoes to the floor or, or uh, swab uh, Vaseline in them. He was just a you know funny guy. He, he you know was able to keep things loose. That's awesome. And that's important too because it's a long, long season, long series, and you know you have to have to keep an even keel. You know. Hey, let's go back to the beginning. Where did Vic Hadfield learn the game, and what kind of player was he growing up? Vic uh, was born in October 1940 in Oakville, Ontario. He played uh, local hockey until 1958 when he joined the St. Catharines Tiki's of the OHA, where he accumulated 73 points in 202 penalty minutes. So wow, he was that's, always, a, that's a lot of uh, penalty minutes. Right. Now, the, uh, the, the TPs were sponsored by the Chicago Blackhawks in those days, so he, he uh, was owned by them. They had won the, uh, the trophy with a team that uh, included Roger Crozier, Pat Stapleton, uh, John Brenneman, uh, Doug Robinson, Chico Mackey, guys like that. Hatfield turned pro in 1960 in the AHL, and he was claimed by the Rangers in the 1961 intra-league draft. And as I said before, the Rangers needed him because they were a small team, and he was bigger. He had size. He was he was uh, aggressive, and he was um, he was able to uh, protect his uh, smaller teammates. How did the Rangers like, find him? How did Emil Fan- How did Emil Francis find out about him? And and what were they expecting when they drafted him? They they saw that he, you know, he had uh, uh, you know penalty minutes when he was in uh, Buffalo, and um, they saw that he was tough, and they saw that he he was willing to uh, to fight, to, you know, to do what he had to do, and they they also saw that he he had he had skills, and he and he had to work at them, but you know, he did that. He he was willing to do that. When he joined the Rangers, they were they were in the beginning of a complete metamorphosis. This was a team that routinely finished at or near the bottom of the NHL standings. Right. He was one of the first new players that Francis brought in. What right. was his original role with the team? He was um he was like on the third line. He was third third line left wing and um Actually, Francis didn't bring him in. If that was uh, Mos Patrick, Mos Patrick that drafted him, oh. because Francis Francis really didn't take over the team until 1964. He was the uh, assistant GM before that, but up, uh, but 1960 and 1961, Amo was the coach of um, the uh, the uh, Guelph uh, Manhattan's in the OHA, mm-hmm. where where he had. He had uh, Jean Rattel and um, Rod Bear up there, so ah, so he goes way back with with uh, those guys. Now, now Vic was not a prolific goal scorer, but man, he could mix it up. Now you said yeah. that he was at that time a pretty big guy in, in regards to NHL standards. Just how tough was he? Vic would Vic would go one on one with the tough guys in the league. I mean, John Ferguson was 
the tough guy in the league. He he was he was feared, but he he was a good player. But Vic would go up against him. Vic was constantly going after uh, Henri Richard. They they had a battle battle every time the Rangers played Montreal. Um, Vic would go up against Eddie Shack, Ted Green, uh, all the, the the known tough guys in the league. Vic would go up against them. And, uh, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But, you know, you don't back down. And Vic didn't back down. What did that mean to the team, to the Rangers, to see a guy like this on their team protecting them? How? What, what does that mean to a team to have a guy like that? Well, it's good to know that, you that, you know, if if uh, something happens on the ice, you have someone who's going to uh, have your back. I mean, um Arnie Brown told me once that it was good to have uh, Vic, Vic out there because he knew he had his back. Because Arnie could, could, you know, get himself in trouble once in a while. He could get into a fight, and he, he you know, had to have someone else out there to uh, uh, protect him, you know? Sure. Hey, you know, I just said just before, I said he wasn't really a prolific goal scorer, but he sure could find the back of the net when the opportunity presented itself. In fact, beginning with the 1967-68 season, he scored at least 20 goals every year for nine straight years. How skilled was he with the puck, and how did his game evolve over the years? Uh, Vic really didn't skate much with the puck. He he, he, uh, uh, was at the end of of a pass from Jean Rattel usually, and then they would shoot it. But um, he, you know, uh, he could shoot the puck high. He could shoot it fast. He had a very, uh, very uh, fast release, and he he was uh, a sharpshooter. He could find the holes when he had to. Of course, as we talked about earlier, the Rangers they were cellar dwellers when Vic joined the team. They the they routinely finished at or near the bottom of the standings. But that changed when stars like Gilbert and Rattel, Walter Kachuk, Brad Park, and others joined the team. They had some pretty good veterans, too, including Hadfield. They had a pretty darn good nucleus. Tell us about those Rangers of the late, sev- of, of the late 60s and the early 70s uh, that were finally becoming a franchise that every team in the NHL had to reckon with. Yeah, well, uh, once... Um Guys like Walker Chilk and Brad Park came on board. They they got better. I mean, Brad Park was our Bobby Orr, and uh, I think everyone who's my age anyway thinks back on Brad Park when he was young and what what hope we had in him. And he 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 was a very good player for us for a long time. And uh, Walker Chilk, you couldn't knock him off his skates. Uh, Bill Fairburn was on the on the bulldog line with uh, Uh the other winger was uh, was Vickers uh, later on, and uh, the Vickers used to hang out by that post and you know knocking rebounds. And uh, the third line was Stemkowski and Irvin and Bruce McGregor, and they were a good checking line, but they could score, you know, and and uh, and the Irvin could fight, and um, and they had a and, heck of uh, a goalie at that time too. H. Ackerman and Jules Vermeule, yep. Um, one was a lefty, one was a righty. Amy used to love to to uh, uh, switch them up, to, so the other teams wouldn't know uh, where they were shooting that night. Um, 
they won the uh, Vezina the one year. I forget which year it was, but the, the, the first year that they brought up uh, Jules Romeo to back up Eddie, that was, that was when they won the uh, Vezina Trophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he had uh, he had uh, Terry Sorchuk as a backup, and he had uh, Don Simmons as a backup the year before that. Was it just bad luck, or was there something else going? Was it just teams always one team better than the Rangers? What prevented that team from winning the Stanley Cup during those during those years? Um, the, the people who I've who I've spoken to, um, and you know, this is what I think too. It's just that the, the the other teams' better players played better than the Rangers' best players. Hmm. Um, the the uh, Bruins have Bobby Orr. The Chicago Blackhawks have Bobby Hall and Stan Mikita, and they they raised the game just a little bit more. I mean, Bobby Orr didn't have to raise his game too much. He was just a great player. <laughs> um, uh, guys like. Uh, you know, Montreal had that whole uh, mystique going for them, and uh, and you know it it it's a bad bounce once in a while. It's bad luck. Uh, you know, you can't really blame injuries because every team has injuries. But I was talking to uh, Bruce McGregor about it, and he said sometimes you just don't win. You can have the best. Sometimes you just don't win, and it, that's just what happens in Rangers. And as I said, 1972 would have been their year, but. It just didn't work out that way. Yeah, it, it it just happens. It happens today that there's great teams, and for whatever reason, they just they just doesn't matter the sport. They just can't get by right. a different team. You know, now like the Rangers had transformed themselves into a cup contender. Hadfield he transformed his game as well, and. His teammates and the team recognized just how important he was. And I think the role of the captain in hockey is much more significant than it is in any other sport. In fact, I'd say in most sports, the role of the captain is just, um, well, I don't know, an honorary position, just something to say that you're the leader of the team. I don't think that's the case in hockey. So I have three questions for you here. First, what is the role of the captain in hockey? Then, how big of an honor is it? And then finally, on a team with so many stars, what did it mean to Vic when he was named captain of one of the most historic teams in sports? So let's start here. What's the role of the captain in hockey? The uh, captain has to keep the team together. Uh, the captain, um, if any players have any uh, complaints about the way they're being played, they're supposed to go to the captain, um, and he's supposed to go to the coaching uh, staff. Uh, and the other way around, too, the uh, coaching staff is supposed to um, make their feelings known sometimes through the captain. Uh, sometimes they just you know do it themselves, but they... they uh, Hope that the captain will put pressure on players who, who won't, who who haven't been playing well. Um, Mark Messier was once famous for um, when he was in Edmonton. One of the players I can't think of who it was at right now, but one of the players wasn't playing well, and they were in the playoffs. And he he actually grabbed the guy and said, "Listen, if you don't stop playing better, I'm going to have to kill you." 
And, uh, so, so that's, so you got to put fear in people sometimes, you know? So, but, you know, I don't think Vic ever did that, but, um, you know, he could. He, he was a tough guy, and I think if he if he looked at you or if or he pointed his finger at you or he let you know that you weren't living up to what you're supposed to be doing, you would you would um, you know play better. You would try harder. You would do whatever you had to do that that you know get him on your side again. How big an honor is it to be named captain of your hockey team? Oh, Vic was Vic was very honored. Um, uh, he. Um, he really uh, enjoyed it. He was only captain for a, uh, a short time, really, but he, he enjoyed it. And uh, as I said, he knew how to keep the team loose, and he knew how to um, keep the team on their toes. And um, he also represented the, the uh, team well in in charity and functions and functions around the city. And he was a good captain. And to think that he was named captain of a team that had Rattel and Gilbert and Kachuk and Park and Vickers and Eddie Jacquemin, although I don't know how many goalies were ever named captain. So many stars. What? Well, sometimes the, yeah. the star player isn't the best captain. Right. Sometimes you, you sometimes you need a guy who's who um, is a gritty player, like Hasfield was, um, uh, someone who. The game hasn't come that easy to because the guy who who had to work hard to get where he is, and he, he appreciates that he had to work hard to get where he is, and uh, that hockey is hard work. Any game is hard work, but you know you just you have to work hard to, to get where where you want to be. And sometimes the star players just don't have that. They you know they they didn't have to work that hard to get where they are, but someone like Vic did. Right, and it's the only sport where the captain. You know, once in a while you might see it in another sport, but every single hockey team, someone's wearing the C, and there's usually one or two guys wearing an A. So it, being a captain is really important in hockey. Your book, We Did Everything But Win, has some great stories about the Rangers of the late 60s and the early 70s. And by the way, I love the format. Love the way you put it together. How did that idea come about to isolate the quotes from the players the way you did? Uh, that's just the um, the format that I had in my head when I when I started out. Every every everything about the book, I kind of had a model in my head about what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. Um, as far as uh, isolating the quotes, I had probably seen that somewhere else in the book that I read years ago or something, and it really really helped me. And it also, from from a uh, writing point of view, it makes it easier because you don't have to say, he said, he, he said, and he continued. You don't have to continue the sentences. You just put their, put their quotes in quotes, and you're done with it. It's a, it's a great way to write a book. Someday, if I ever write a book, that's what I'm going to do. So, so if listeners of Sports Forgotten Heroes want a good, entertaining read, it also has some very humorous stories. you got to pick up George's book, We Did Everything But Win. And let's give listeners a little more of a taste, especially when it comes to Hadfield. Like you said earlier, he was somewhat of a prankster. He liked to have fun, and he took that to the ice intentionally or not. I had to laugh when I heard about what he did with the mask of Bernie Perrant. What happened? Actually, Bernie was uh, on the Maple Leafs at the time. 
And um, that was in the first round of the uh, 1971 playoffs. The Rangers won the first game, but this was game two. And um, they played the following night. So any bad blood that was uh, from the previous night was still fresh the, the, the uh, night after that. And this this was a chippy game from the start. And it, ended, it, it wound up that the, 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 the Rangers were losing 3-1 to one in the third period when all hell broke loose. Um, with about five minutes left in the third period, Hatfield went into the corner with uh, with uh, Jim Harrison, and they were fighting. And uh, everyone paired off, and all of a sudden, Bernie Perron comes out of his net and goes over to the fight between Harrison and and uh, Hatfield and tries to help Harrison. Now, the Ranger goalie, uh, Eddie Jockerman at the time, he sees this, and he comes screaming down the ice, throwing off his mask, his gloves, his stick. Uh, the uh, referee, Lloyd Gilmore, tried to hold him back, you know, don't don't get involved. But he just went right past him, and he, he got involved. And then, of course, everyone came off the bench, and, uh, you know, they fought for a while, and they, they, they uh, calmed down. Then uh, Hadfield pushed Harrison again, and they went back to fighting again. And finally, when everything uh, was quiet and everyone was picking up their sticks and gloves, Vic saw uh, 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 Perron's uh, mask laying on the ice and he flipped it into the stands. <laughs> into the stands. Now, you know, Perron is looking around for his mask and he can't find it. He's getting upset. And... Uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, King Clancy from the uh, Maple Leafs ran down that corner of the, of the gardens looking for it. The, uh, the uh, garden police looked around to see if they could find, if they could find the mask. But by that time, whoever had the mask was long gone. They, they just brought, ran up the stairs and went home. Heck yeah. <laughs> and, um, and since he only brought one mask you know, with him, uh, Jacques Plant had to replace him. So um, they have the face-off for the, you know, once everybody gets everything cleaned up, they have another face-off. And uh, Teddy Irvin goes into the other corner, starts fighting with uh, one of the leaves. And, you know, Jacques Clark leaves his net again and gets involved. Eddie, Eddie Jackman comes down again like the Lone Ranger, and he just, he just gets involved with that fight too. Finally, order is restored. Uh, the Rangers ended up losing the game, and they went on to win the series. But um, uh, the Leafs were fined uh, $16,000 for their part in the brawl. The Rangers were fined um, uh, $8,000, I believe. Um, and, Bernie uh, per- and Bernie Perrant lost a mask. Yes, uh, he actually had to order one from Jacques Plant's company, and it came before the the, the uh, game three. The original mask, though, was returned to the to the Rangers a few days later um, in an unmarked envelope, and um, no one knows where it came from or anything. But it was returned to them, and and uh, Emil Francis gave it back to uh, Bernie Perron. <laughs> By the way, for the for, for for listeners out there, I just got to say this: Ted Irvine of the Rangers. If you're a world wrestling entertainment fan, if you love 
Wrestling. Chris Jericho is Ted Irvine's son. That's right. That's right. Hey, there was Eddie, a... Eddie, yeah, go ahead. Eddie was tough. Eddie was a tough guy. And, you know, all the tough guys in the league, he took them on too. And he... He was a... He was a he was very tough. Uh, one of one of the reasons why Amos picked him up was because uh, Amos saw him fight uh, Barkley Plaga and uh, somebody else in, with, with St. Louis at the same time. He, he had these two guys at the same time. Amos Amos got him the next day from the Kings. Wow. There's another game that was played at Madison Square Garden, and the goal judge clearly missed a goal. Emil Francis was not happy with the call. Can you tell us that story and Hadfield's involvement in that? Uh, November 21st, 1965. Marines were playing uh, Detroit at the Garden, at the Old Garden, and um, they were they were winning two to one late in the third period. Uh, Norm Ullman took a shot. And he just turned around and went up towards the other end of the ice. Like, uh, you know, he, he shot. It didn't go in. He was, you know, headed back up ice. Uh, all of a sudden, the referee blew the whistle. He went over to, to the goal judge. They talked. And he went over to the uh, scorer's table, and they put a two up on the board that uh, the Red Wings had scored. And Amos Francis at the time was a general manager, and he went ballistic because uh, he didn't think it was a goal. And he he ran over to where the goal just sat. Now, uh, in those days, they just sat out in the crowd. They didn't have a booth around them. So he went over there, and he was arguing with the uh, goal judge, who was named Arthur Reichert, who was a very well-respected uh, man in the garden. He had been there for um, quite a number of years. I think he, only, he, he was there from the 50s up until the 90s. Um, and and Amon was arguing with him in his premise that the guy who took the shot turned around and went up ice. So because he so he didn't think it went in. And um, and as this was going on, there were some fans in the area who told Amon to sit down and shut up. And Amon told them to mind their business. And all of a sudden, they all started to fight. They had and, no uh, idea who he was. Right, they didn't know who he was. And you know, because at the time. This is 65. Amo had only been named GM in 64. So it's possible they didn't know who he was, you know? And he was um, fighting for them. <laughs> he was fighting for them. So, um, you know, this is going on behind the uh, behind the glass, behind the net, and Vic sees what's going on, and he says, hey, that's Amo over there. So, Amo, so Vic and five other Rangers climbed this nine-foot... Uh, Glass, oh, man. With you know, with this case on, and they 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 came to the rescue of their uh, of Amo Francis. I mean, at, and at the time, they had folding chairs back there. They didn't have regular seats at folding chairs. And Arnie Brown told me that he came when he came down from the glass. He he put his foot right through one of these folding chairs. So he, they were just trying to fight and trying to get people off Amo, and and his one leg has this rolling chair on it, you know? Mm. So it was very, very, you know, it was a very funny scene, but, you know, it, uh, it was crazy. (laughs) So now when it was all over, um, the fans said that, you know, they were sorry. They didn't know who he was and, and, uh, no one was going to press charges against the other guy. 
But a few days later, Amos was served with papers that they were going to, to serve to, to uh, sue him. Oh, man. And uh, it went through two court cases. The first one was thrown out. The second one, uh, they won money. I don't remember how much, but they, they won money off the, off the Rangers. And, and the, uh, the game ended in a 3-3 tie. So. Mm. He was selected to be a part of Team Canada. This particular team was is one of the most celebrated teams in the history of hockey. I believe it is the only team itself as a whole to be voted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. The names on that team are legendary. Bobby Orr, Brad Park, Roger Bear, Yvonne Cornwayer, Jean Rattel, Ken Dryden, Phil Esposito. The list goes on and on and on. And, of course, there was Paul Henderson, who scored one of the most famous goals in the history of hockey. Hard to imagine there could be a down when talking about that team. But for Vic, it wasn't the best of experiences. Can you tell us what happened? Yes. Uh, yeah, Vic was one of five Rangers that made that team. Rigel, uh, uh Roger Baird, John Rattel, uh, Brad Park, and Rod Sealing were the other four. And Vic played with the uh, gag line in game one, and they played well, but they didn't score anything, and uh, they weren't scheduled to dress for game two, which was in Maple Leaf Gardens. And Jobert um, uh, and um, Rattel understood that Harry Sinden, the, the manager of the team, had a lot of plays here to keep happy, and um, it was someone else's turn to play. Vic wasn't... Vic thought he was being uh, slighted uh, because the game was being played in Maple Leaf Gardens and that's near his hometown, and he, he, was, he was not happy with that. So that, that got things off on the wrong foot. And so Vic didn't play much throughout the four games that were in Canada. Um, when they went to Europe, they played a few games in Sweden, I believe, uh, just to get used to the uh, larger ice services. And Dick, Dick played there, and he played well. But then when they, they went to uh, Russia, uh, Dick was um, left off the practice uh, roster. He didn't, he didn't have a line to practice with hmm. uh, one of the practices. And uh, he was not happy with that. And uh, Harry Sinem told him to just uh, spell the other players, take, you know, take, their place when they got tired. Hmm. And Vic, Vic just didn't want to do that. So he sat on the bench and read the paper. And um, Harry Sinden came over and told him, you know, don't do that. Uh, if you're going to not play, just go and, you know, change your clothes and go inside. So Vic, Vic uh, threatened to go home. Alan, Alan Eagleson. Alan Eagleson was, was the organizer of the whole thing. And he talked um, Vic out of going home then. But um, later that day, Vic did pack his bag, even though the rest of the Ranger uh, players tried to talk him out of it, Vic did pack his bag and go home. And he got, he got bad press for it when he got home, that he, uh, he, 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 you know, he didn't want to be part of the team. He deserted the uh, Team Canada. He was, you know, jumping mm-hmm. off his thing. Because at the time, Team Canada was losing the series. But... Uh, he he always did what was what he wanted to do. He always, you know, was his own man. 
and um, he wasn't happy, and that was what he wanted to do. What a shame. So there, there's two downers. Yeah. And like you said, um, the big downer was when the Rangers traded him, and they traded him to Pittsburgh. He had a pretty good run with the Penguins in his two full seasons with the team. He scored 31 goals and then 30 goals the following season, the second and third highest goal-scoring outputs of his career. So why did he call it quits after two years with Pittsburgh? Well, Vic, Vic had, uh, you know, by that time, he had um, injury problems. He, he always, for, the, for the, the previous four or five years, he had trouble with his hands. He was always nursing broken hands. Um, when he scored his 50th goal, he had he had uh, a, a broken thumb on one hand and and uh, he had uh, torn ligaments on the other. And his, wow. his hands had taped taped his thumbs had to be taped to his forefinger so mm. that play. And he, he you know he had bad ankles. He had ankle problems, and he was just you know at the age where he just didn't want to go through that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, for many players in all sports, they disappear from our radar after their playing days end, and we never hear about them again. Some just don't want to be heard from again. Of course, Vic being from Canada makes it a little bit more difficult for us down here in the States to keep tabs on him. While he has not exactly been in the limelight, he's certainly been somewhat active. In fact, his work with the Daniela Maria Arturi Foundation is quite significant. Can you tell us about the foundation, who Daniela was, the awful affliction she had, and what Vic's relationship to the family is? Uh, Daniela has uh, what you call black fan uh, anemia, uh, which is a rare childhood uh, disorder resulting from the failure of bone marrow to uh, produce uh, red blood cells. Vic got involved with um, the program when uh, one of his partners, Manny Artori, you know, mentioned it to him, and he, he uh, explained the situation. And um, in in 1996, and uh, with Vic's help, they raised uh, over over uh, three million dollars for the fund. Wow! Now the um, now since then, since Vic got involved, they have um, raised. Uh, over thirty-seven million dollars for the fund uh, through through uh, charity events and um, anything that he could do. Vic Vic really gives a lot of time to the uh, uh, DBA uh, center. Um, if you'd like some information about it, you can, Vic has uh, a link on his website, which is VicHadfieldGolf.com. Vic owns a uh, golf center up in Oakville, Ontario, and um, they'd be happy to hear from you. Hey, in the end, how should hockey fans remember Vic Hadfield, and what impact did he have on the New York Rangers? Um, people should remember Vic as a, as a guy who, who worked hard to get where he was. He actually had a metamorphosis. He, he came up as one kind of player, and he ended up as another kind. He, he came up as a tough guy. Uh, and he, he had skills, like I said, but at the time the Rangers were just hoping for the best. 
But uh, in the end, he scored 50 goals and he still backed up his teammates. Hard-working guy. He was he was a, a leader, and uh, they should they should remember him that way. And and he's always been there for the the uh, Ranger Alumni Association. He's been there for the fans. Um, I've spoken to him a few times, and he was always there for me. And he's always, he's always been a very uh, giving person, big-hearted giving person. Do you think he gets the recognition he deserves? Uh, probably not, no. Uh, because of uh, the time span, you know, the time uh, that has passed. And uh, perhaps because of the way he, he left the Rangers. But um, that, that was one game. That was that was a small portion of his career. Um, he he had many many other uh, great games mm-hmm. that uh, should that should uh, overshadow that one episode. Absolutely, he was a uh, a great player for a great team. George, I want to thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Tell us a little bit more about your book. And for you, what was the most fun thing about writing it? Well, uh, actually talking to the players. Um, I was born in, in, in New Jersey, New Jersey. And uh, I, as I said, yeah, I looked up to these guys. They're my heroes. And to, to be able to pick up the phone and call them and to have them treat me like an old friend and to make time for me and to call me back when they were busy. And um, it was just a big thrill. And, 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 you know, it's the kind of thing that I'm, you know, very happy that the book was sold to a publisher and it's being read by people. But uh, even if it, uh, if it didn't get that far, I would have been happy just to, just to have that uh, experience to be able to talk to these guys. I mean, Emil, Emil Francis gave me so much time. And he's he's been so so good to me. So he's been giving so much uh, of his so many of his afternoons he gave me. I spoke to him for hours, and uh, we're still friends. I still call him just to check up on him. He's 91 years old, and he's sharp wow. as a tack. He can he can give you names and dates, and he still goes out and plays golf. And hmm. the one just a wonderful man. And um, I really enjoyed that part of the book and I enjoyed researching it and um, and writing it. It, you know, it was a it was a fun experience all the way through. Awesome. And where can fans get a copy? Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, probably other stores like Target and stuff. I know you can get it in uh, in uh, Cosby's up by uh, by the garden. Jerry Cosby's. I had a book signing there a couple months ago, which was very exciting. Uh, and um, and, uh, and if if you do go out and buy it, I hope you like it. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, and you can let me know if you want. It's a great book. I really enjoyed it. George, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. For his career, and this might surprise some people, Hadfield scored 323 goals and added 389 assists, 
With the Rangers, he totaled 262 goals and 310 assists, with his best season coming in 71-72 when he tallied 50 goals and 56 assists for a career-high 106 points. He also accrued 142 penalty minutes that year. You know, he scored 20 goals for the Rangers in the 1967-68 season, and that was the least amount of goals he would score in a season again. In fact, his last year with the Pittsburgh Penguins, he scored 30 goals. In the playoffs, Hadfield found the back of the net 27 times and added 21 assists. Now, he only made one All-Star game during his career, and that also came in the 71-72 season as well. Why isn't Hadfield's career held in higher regard? It's really a tough question because without him, the Rangers might never have reached the heights they did in the late 60s and early 70s. He was captain of the team, and by being placed on a line with Rattel and Jobert, it allowed those two to really put the pressure on the rest of the league. Hadfield is in the Hockey Hall of Fame as a part of the great 1972 Team Canada team. But as Grimm relayed, that experience, as great as it was for the rest of Canada and NHL fans, it turned out to be not so great for Hadfield. But as far as Ranger fans are concerned, Vic Hadfield will go down as one of the greatest in team history. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about the career of a golfer who was involved in one of the most incredible incidents in the history of sports, particularly golf. The scoring error in the 1968 Masters that cost Roberto DiVincenzo a chance at glory and the green jacket. That's next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Once again, thank you to today's guest, George Grimm, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.